Hello, and welcome to Get Me Another, the podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. And today, we're going to be talking about one of the some of the darker movies that followed in the wake of the 1989 Batman. The first is the sequel to that film, 1992's Batman Returns. And after that, we'll be spending some time discussing the surprise hit of 1994, The Crow. Now, Rob, in some ways, you know, we designed this podcast to talk about the movies that tried to replicate the success of, of massive hits. And in a way, sequels are the ultimate expression of that. And, you know, there are times where we'll talk about sequels, there are times where we'll not necessarily put as much emphasis on them, but I thought in the case of Batman Returns, it was very much a movie worth discussing in terms of both the movie itself and the reaction to it. Absolutely. I I particularly love when the initial hit is clearly a one for you, and the same filmmaker is brought back for the sequel, and it morphs into a one for me. Those are often some of my favorite uh, sequels, and Batman well, Returns is no exception to that. Yeah, it's and it's interesting because I think it's very clear that the first Batman movie was, while Tim Burton obviously is a, is a major component of its success, it was a it was a number of different creative forces all kind of working in concert and perhaps balancing with one another. You had you had Burton, obviously, as director. You had Peter Gruber and, uh, and John Peters as producers. You had Sam Hamm writing the script. And I feel like, you know, Batman Returns is a different animal altogether. Absolutely. Just even from the set design and costume design, the first film, we'd talked about mixed many looks, and you had German Expressionism, Art Deco, uh, various styles kind of mashed in. Batman Returns looks like Tim Burton's drawings come to life. This movie looks closer to Sweeney Todd uh, or his drawings for The Nightmare Before Christmas than it does to the original Batman that he did. Totally. And it's interesting, you know, the, the, the first Batman was shot largely on soundstage in the UK. And... Um, you know, sound stages and backlots in 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 the UK at uh, I believe at Pinewood Studios. They actually stored all of the sets from the first Batman, you know, in anticipation of shooting a sequel. Because let's be honest, no one was going to just make one Batman movie. If you make a Batman movie and it's a hit, the way you know, I mean, I can't You're think of another say, movie that sort of get me another Batman. I was I was going to say <laughs> get me another Batman. But that was, I mean, you know, I can't think of a movie since, you know, Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark that cried out for a second installment as much as Batman and the hit that that was. So they were preparing from the get-go to do a second one. Um, they they stored all the sets in, in you know, in England. Uh, and then they ended up shooting in the United States and everything got redesigned. Everything feels, you know, it's it's not entirely a different Gotham City, but it's significantly different. Um yeah, I mean the, uh, the 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 look of of Wayne Manor goes from being you know looking sort of like this this sort of uh, this classic old house to something that that came out of the opening sequence of Tim Burton's uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Like it it, it it there's an element of unreality that uh, that works its way into this film. That that I feel like the first one's a little more grounded. It is, and this even goes to the color palette, which is much more severely restricted in Batman Returns 
than it is even in Batman, which doesn't necessarily have a super wild color palette all the time. Uh, and this one has that kind of icy blue look to everything in the film. Uh, it just kind of tinges everything because, lest we forget, Batman Returns is a Christmas movie. Um, and uh, and that, that winter dreary look kind of infects everything. I mean... Let's be honest, is there anything more Tim Burton than a gang of circus freaks terrorizing the city? That's the most Tim Burton thing I've ever seen. Absolutely. Uh, it even goes past the giant, uh, what, rubber ducky, I think. Which I love uh, that rubber duck. Come, comes later in the film. That uh, rubber it, duck looks, is great. And I love the, the design on that is uh, not dissimilar from uh, one of the toys... Uh, the I think it's like a becomes a vampire rubber ducky in Nightmare Before Christmas. They are at least right. cousins. Right. Oh, absolutely. Well, let's let's start with talking a little bit about uh, about the script. Uh, Sam Hamm was the was the writer on the original movie, and he did come back and do a, a draft of uh, of of Batman Returns, which I think at the time was just simply Batman Two. Uh, but they did not use that draft, and instead they brought in another writer. Um, Daniel Waters, uh, who had done Heathers, a movie that I know you're a big fan of. Absolutely. And a movie that um, when you look at that movie, I'll just say very quickly, that is a movie that clearly at the time was controversial given its subject matter and yet clearly predicted exactly what was wrong in this country and where things were going to go as far as violence in high school. What seemed fantastic at the time was really the the warning light on the dashboard flashing red but also importantly it's a deeply weird movie and to bring him in for batman returns is just oh fantastic i mean it's it's it takes a special kind of uh you know it it takes a special kind of thing to say oh hey who am i gonna bring in for batman for our batman sequel let's bring in the guy who did heathers uh it's a really it's a bold move a bold move cotton let's see if it works out for yeah almost as bold as barely having batman in the first act of your film uh that's called batman returns um and this is something that people uh back in the day harped on quite a bit what i what surprised me is in watching the film now and kind of knowing where it goes and i hadn't seen it for a while but i remembered all of these things i didn't care uh, I actually, yeah. because you're establishing three separate villains with their own uh, backstories, it actually takes the time to deal with them. And in many ways, in this entire film, the villains are front and center in a way that um, even the Joker in the first one, I don't think, was quite this front and center. Yeah, no, I was going to say, you know, there, there's some people who would criticize the first film as being very tilted towards the Joker. And I'm not sure how true that really is. I think you have a fairly good balance between uh, between Bruce Wayne and, and the Joker. Uh, I think in in the second one, it's really... And part of it is because they elected to go with two villains. You know, they just... So that's the screen time. And in, fa- in a sense, they elected to go with three villains because while you have the Penguin and the Catwoman, you also have Christopher Walken as Max Shrek, who is really the third the third heat of, of that. And uh, Max Shrek, continuing our theme, is a villain who's essentially a land developer who will do whatever it takes to become more rich and more powerful. So just uh, ding, just checking off a box here for uh, this series of films. 
It's not a power plant, Rob. It's a giant capacitor sucking power from the city. Um, <laughs> we should say at the outset that the four principal actors in this movie, uh, Michael Keaton, uh, Danny DeVito, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Christopher Walken, are all incredible. Like, I, I, I can't remember, a, you know, a movie like this where you just have such really great performances from every, all of the leads. And on top of that, specifically Keaton and Pfeiffer's scenes together, both as Bruce and um, Selina and as Batman and Catwoman, these two light this screen on fire every time they share uh, screen they, time. I absolutely yeah. love it. It is they they're the scene in in the towards the end where they are at the big gala party and they are dancing together. Where they it's when they kind of realize who each other is. I mean that is uh, that's electric. Yeah, that and that is probably my favorite scene between the two of them in the entire film. Um, although obviously there are, there are many great moments between them, that first rooftop meeting, um, where you get some, I would say not veiled at all S and M between them with the, the pleasure and the pain it's, where you have, it's uh, not veiled. No, it is not Vicky veiled at all. It's been uh, <laughs> out in the open now. Uh, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it, but a kiss can be deadlier if you mean it. Absolutely. Um, and just the, the whole look, Catwoman had been in vinyl or leather before this movie on screen. Absolutely. However, it was always restrained. This movie is just so front and center with it. Even, um, one of my favorite little bits is, uh, in the becoming Catwoman sequence, mm -hmm. uh, it's just full-on nonconformist smashing of society's feminine symbols to claim her own symbols. Yes. Uh, where she's smashing the things in the apartment, and it's then becoming very much her own rebellion against a role in society. There is nothing more early 90s than this, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's um, true. She puts the stuffed animals down the garbage disposal. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She's a riot girl. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's that's she. She sort of prefigures, you know, whole and 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 uh, you know that a whole wave of sort of you know turning what was traditional femininity on its ear. Um, uh, that's you know that's that's fantastic. That's great. Uh, I mean, you know, we talked about when we were talking about Dick Tracy uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we talked about how surprised the Disney executives must have been when they saw the film that Warren Beatty made. And, and it's not quite the film that you would use to, to, to sort of sell Happy Meals and, and, and action figures. My goodness, what must the Warner Brothers executives thought when they first screened Batman Returns? My goodness. Yeah, I can only imagine their surprise, but uh, probably... Matched by my own personal surprise as I went through a second puberty upon first viewing of this film, Chris. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I don't blame you. That, that, that makes all the sense in the world. That's, uh, it's completely natural, the things you were feeling, Rob. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, it's... I mean, again, this is a sequel to one of the biggest movies of all time that is squarely aimed at, you know, at, at all ages. I mean, it's, it's, it's supposedly... Uh, and it's actually, you know, again, you're selling Happy Meals, and it is a movie that actually contains the phrase, 
Unlimited Poontang. Uh, uttered by, uh, that's Penguin, right? Uh... Uh, it's Christopher Walken trying oh. to induce the Penguin to run for mayor. That's and one of the is. things he promises him is, I mean, this is, we talked about a movie, we we're talking about a, a horny movies. This is, this is about as horny as movies get without being, you know, completely explicit. It's, uh, my goodness. And, and what I find interesting is while they do set up in the beginning a lot of potential uh, compassion for Oswald. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. He becomes Penguin later on. They do take great pains, and I think his uh, sexism is one of the ways where they just make him disgusting. So that yeah. it, um, much like the character in the world of the film is suckering Gotham, the residents of yeah. Gotham, about his true nature, the movie almost suckers the audience into thinking that Oswald yeah. is going to be sympathetic in that way, but then pulls the rug out. At the same time that they give you Selena and Catwoman, where you do wind up kind of having that that compassion and it's not misplaced. Um, but this whole film, on multiple levels with multiple characters, very much is playing with the idea of your public persona versus your true inner identity. And Absolutely. it does that all over the place. Uh, obviously with Max Shrek, it does that. And in with Bruce and Batman, uh, again, I will <laughs> coming to him last, but it is there in this film. There's a scene in in this movie. It's after the first after Batman's first fight with Catwoman, where um, he, where where Batman's in the Batcave and he's pulling the the, the spikes out of uh, out of his out of the side because he's been injured. And it's the first time we see him speak in his Bruce Wayne voice but wearing the Batman suit. He calls up Alfred and, you know, and, and asks for him to come down with the medical kit. And it's this, this one moment where he's sort of both Bruce Wayne and Batman at the same time. Because even in, in some of the other scenes when he's, you know, he's in the, the Batmobile and he's, he's calling Alfred, he's still speaking in the Batman voice. So it's, it's, it's one of the most interesting moments in all of the Michael Keaton, you know, all of Michael Keaton's performance as, as Batman over two movies it's that moment where he's sort of both at the same time. And what's interesting is because I think is the story, Selena is bringing that out of him. Yeah. And Catwoman is bringing that out of him. The yeah. It's almost the healing of that rift. That before he is, he is Bruce Wayne here and he is Batman here. And that by the end of this movie those two characters come together or those two portions of his yeah. psyche kind of reunite in a way um that is at least it seems a lot healthier uh given everything that's happened yeah and you have that moment in the in the in the very end where he takes off the mask you know he's he's in the as batman and he takes off the mask as bruce wayne off underneath it leads to one of my favorite bits which is when the eye makeup that he clearly wears around his eyes disappears uh, <laughs> because uh, and my one of my favorite lines in the movie which is when walken says bruce wayne why are you dressed up as batman i'm like this <laughs> it's such a like because <laughs> he is batman um christopher walken in this movie in in is just amazing um like it's it's one of my favorite Christopher Walken performances uh, as Max Shrek. He's just he's so good, um, you know. I mean, it, it, what starts out as sort of a 
a kind of Donald Trump inspired thing kind of becomes something even more. Uh, it's funny. There's a great, I, I noticed when I was watching it, there's a, there's a bit where they go, the, the camera pans across the pictures in Max Schreck's office. And in one of them uh, has Max Schreck instead of in the famous Nixon Elvis photo. Instead it is in this world, it is uh, Nick, it is Max Schreck and Elvis shaking hands uh, and there is also a photo of Max with uh, with Arnold Schwarzenegger, who would later go on to play uh, Mr. Freeze. Or is it a photo of Max with noted cryogenicist Dr. Victor Freeze? Who knows? Mm. Maybe that was planting the seed of, of what was to come. Um, yeah, and as you uh, had mentioned that, that line of Shrek's and with Walken's performance, there is that is indicative of there is so much deadpan humor in this movie yeah um there's a lot of more overt stuff as well but there are a lot of just throwaway lines and throwaway bits um some of it even going into the action of the movie where uh there's that one scene where batman is is fighting folks he has almost his raiders of the lost ark moment with the the swordsman and the gun where oh yeah the, the big guy who says hit me and then batman just you know sticks dynamite <laughs> you know well yeah and, then, and, then, and uh, this is a and blows the guy up it's very you know it's at least a similar type of setup burton's batman is not one that's afraid to kill as we we have established uh before it is not the uh you know it's not even that i'm not gonna save you it's i'm uh, i'm gonna stick a, a, a stick of dynamite down your pants and throw you in the sewer um it's it is not necessarily the batman of the comic i mean there's you know, there's things about this. It is so weird that Warner Brothers would greenlight this movie. I mean, it's got a plot about child murder. I mean, that's crazy. Um, that they would. I, I, I'm kind of I'm kind of in awe of the fact that this movie exists and that Warner Brothers kind of said, "Oh, hey, Tim, do whatever you want." I mean, and it's it's a it's a movie I really enjoy, but I I think to myself. Is this the movie you were gonna make as your your second Batman movie? I'm 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 kind of shocked that it, it exists. Well, and I can tell you that the making of this movie still reverberates at Warner Brothers even today. Um, I have uh, been at the Warner Brothers lot before. I'd even uh, worked there for a short time, and anyone who works there for a period of time will notice the stray cats. Um, oh, there yeah. were times that I would come out and on the hood of my car was a, a circle of stray cats holding some sort of cat conference, clearly in their uh, hobo cat ways. Uh, and I had to shoo them off so I could leave. And all of that stems from the fact that they had so many cats uh, with the cat wrangler on this film and some escaped. And to this day, their descendants uh, haunt the, uh, <laughs> the lot. Now, this is what I was told. I'm not going to let amazing. anyone tell me different. I'm going to print the legend. So please don't contact oh, yeah. me and tell me, oh, no. no, there was an animal shelter next door or something like that. No, it was Batman Returns. And you can still see those, uh, you know, the cat descendants today. That's amazing. Uh, that is, you know, I, Rob, I, both Rob and I have worked for Warner Brothers in the past. And um, I do remember the cats. I, I never had them on my car, but... I never made the connection to Batman Returns before now. That's that's kind of fantastic. 
Um, I will say, in no, a lot of ways, I didn't make the connection either. Some somebody told me <laughs> on lot. Uh, yeah, I think that is fantastic. Like that is a, that's a great Hollywood urban legend. Like you say, when the legend is uh, in the words of 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 Batman. Uh, star Robert Wool of the first Batman movie when truth is be- when the legend is better than truth print the legend um, yeah I feel like this movie in a lot of ways is to Batman as Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is to Raiders of the Lost Ark it's it, it may not it, it may not have been the movie that should have been Batman 2 by any kind of logic it's like this is not the way they should have gone but it's it, again, it's a deeply, it's an interesting movie. It's a really well-made movie, and uh, it is it is a deep Tim Burton film for sure. And and just um, th- this has to be one of the movies that, for me at least, is just a pinnacle of pre CGI filmmaking. Um, yeah, just the way that the mats and the sets and the action comes together, uh, and they're doing it, you know, mostly in front of camera, um, and it's yeah. just. It's just uh, fantastic to see and a, a visual feast, if, if you will. Uh, I think, you know, it's, I think one of the through lines for this series is watching the transition as we go through time and we starting with Batman and moving through the 90s, uh, the transition from largely practical effects to a combination of practical and CGI to eventually largely CGI by the time we reach the sort of the end of this cycle. And it's interesting to see how that changes. Absolutely. And I do, I, I, a, a tiny thing, I do wonder if Tim Burton had seen Warren Beatty's Dick Tracy. And we have a little uh, influence coming in because uh, Dick Tracy has six, count them, six split diopter shots. Uh, and that's where you have, uh, it's, it's almost like a split yep. lens so that uh, you can have two different focal uh depths usually for extreme yes. foreground and extreme background uh right. and uh the original batman usually a sort none. of out of focus in between a little bit of out of focus in between absolutely and this one has a split diopter shot it's about 48 minutes or so into the movie when shrek uh pays penguin a visit we have the split diopter oh, there yeah. the penguins in the right foreground shrek's uh shrek excuse me is coming up the stairs to the left background the seam in the lens is not hidden as well in this shot. Uh, you can see more of the blur. Dick Tracy, they hid those pretty, pretty darn well. But I will say, I mean, the shot mm. still looks fantastic. Um, and it's it's amazing. I am a big fan of those types of shots. Absolutely. They, they to me, are sort of a, a classic Hollywood visual um, that you would do. You know, again, it was done. Uh, it was all practical. You know, it's this was before yeah. the days of CGI. Just put it in a computer. Oh, yeah. And um, then, uh, you have so many special effect lines. <laughs> lines that, to me, are as exciting as any explosion or wire work. Um, to, like Daniel Waters, again, I just I always love his dialogue. But there's the one sure. particular Catwoman line that I had to write down because it's just so wonderful. Mm. Uh, when she says, it's the so-called normal guys who always let you down. Let you Sickos down. never scare me. At least they're committed. Like that is so oh, Daniel Waters. So I, good. We talk about how much of Burton's, uh, you know, personality gets to come across in this movie. The writer's personality also gets to come across. Whereas that that first Batman movie is uh, is very much uh, a blend product um, and a great one. Yeah. But this one is just yeah. a. It feels more personal in that way. Uh, yeah. No. That that is a, a terrific line and. Uh... 
yeah, I mean, it's it's a movie that I'm glad was made, um, but I can also look back and say, man, why was why why did you go in that? Di-? It's so amazing to me that they went in that direction in an era where where you know corporate filmmaking is is is, is so much more planned and controlled that this would end up as the the second movie in a series um, that you know one of the arguably the biggest movie series of the '90s. Um, that this ended up as the second installment is kind of it's kind of a miracle and it's kind of maybe they shouldn't have gone in this direction because then what happens obviously after this and we'll talk about this on a later show is uh, they did not want Tim Burton back for part three and uh, and 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 they went in a very different direction for the third and fourth Batman movies that were to follow. We will talk about those in greater detail uh, down the road, but uh, I think it's the reaction to this film that spurred them going sort of drastically in another direction. Yeah, and um, but there are, not to get into the later films until later, but um, there are moments in this and elements that are also laying the seeds for what comes later in the bat even in this batman uh franchise incarnation because this is this is still the era where the they are embracing that a comic book movie is from a comic book they're not trying sure. to um gritty it up they're not trying to make it feel super real um so you have the thing i mean by the end when you have the penguins with the rockets on their backs. That whole sequence. There's a, there's a, you have an army of penguins in this movie. An army of penguins with rockets on their back that are going to destroy the city. Um, and that feels not only, I mean, it is very comic book, but it also, it almost harkens back a little bit to some of the early Bond villain type things. Um, they wouldn't have used penguins, but the rockets and the, the big countdown timer and all of that, um, it, it feels very akin. And, and this, to me, feels bigger in that way even than um or more comic booky than even the uh the gas-filled balloons that the joker was going to have uh in the uh no yeah in the first batman which is you know not it's not that that's not comic booky but penguins with rockets strapped to their backs even more so even more so yeah and i i feel like the, the the james bond connection the the member of the red triangle circus gang who's doing the countdown is this kind of deadpan you know two minutes and counting and it does sound like some of the countdowns from some of the bond like diamonds are forever or or uh or or you only live twice that kind of thing um but we move on uh from batman returns to uh, another fairly dark uh superhero movie that that kind of you know last week we talked about the rocketeer which which was a very uh you know had a kind of lightness of tone uh, and and as a consequence, uh, didn't necessarily do that well at the box office at the time. Uh, if there is a flip side to that coin, to the to the coin that is the Rocketeer, it is in all likelihood the Crow. It can't rain all the time, Chris. I don't know. It was the '90s. Maybe it could. I mean, well, that's the secret uh, of that line: is that it can rain all the time, and your streets will be wet and glistening <laughs> in every night shot because it's been raining constantly. Constantly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, the Crow was based on a 1990, 1989 comic by James O'Barr. Uh, originally, the film was set for distribution at Paramount, but they dropped it after the tragic onset death of Brandon Lee. Uh, it was then picked up by Miramax and was unexpectedly a big hit when it came out in May of 1994. 
Um, it is the most goth movie ever. It launched a thousand dance nights, I'm sure. Uh, and even even to the soundtrack of the film, which doesn't have necessarily straight goth in it, but you have Nine Inch Nails covering um, a Joy Division. You've got um, some really good dark stuff. The Cure's on here. Um, just yep. wonderful things. And, and of course, I would be remiss, and, well, not goth at all. Uh, Stone Temple Pilots uh, as well. With the, 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 one, the biggest hit off the soundtrack, which is kind of buried in the film itself. Speaking of the music in the film, this is the only score not made by or in the style of Danny Elfman. Uh, in a lot true. of the films that we've been talking about, you know, and and it is because the score itself also kind of reflects that that goth nightclub uh, feel to yeah. everything. In addition to the, well, I, it's funny. You, I, I wrote down in my notes: this is the movie that launched a million relatively cheap Halloween costumes in the nineties. <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I, I remember Draven. that was. Lots of Eric Draven, and and you know, I mean, just this is a movie that is all about chokers and torn fishnets, like the, the girls. It's all chokers and torn torn fishnets. Um, it's 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 a really good. I mean, it's don't get me wrong. It's a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. I hadn't seen it in a while, um, but it's just it is very much of its time in a, in, a, in in an interesting way. Yeah, and uh, and for those who don't know, and this, I mean, just doing the, the small recap just sounds super 90s. Uh, Eric Draven, a rock star, uh, is with uh, his... He is the lead singer of Hangman's Joke. Yes, yes. Um, which I wonder if that's kind of a play on Killing Joke, the band. Ooh. But anyway, I digress. Um, yeah, and uh, he and his fiancée Shelley are uh, going to be married... On Halloween, I believe, right? But on it's Devil's Halloween. Night. Yeah. But it's the Devil's Night. The night before night. is Devil's Night in, in Detroit. And uh, they are attacked by a gang of people who invade their home. Uh, they wind up uh, killing both Shelley and Eric. And uh, this is all in relation, uh, speaking of a little dark man, in relation to their activism about the ownership of the... Uh, apartment building they're living in and the conditions and they're running afoul of one of the big crime bosses unbeknownst to them and so then uh a year later eric comes back on he does he literally bursts forth from the grave on devil's night when a crow visits the grave uh i will i will point out there was a scene where you 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 see a picture of the of the the band hangman's joke and all the names of the band members there's a band member named mo devious and at some point if, if i ever need to travel under a false name i am i am going to to travel the world as mo devious because uh, that is fantastic uh, okay the, the uh, it's so it, there's there's a hardcore element to this it's so hardcore that the music venue has random welding going on like there's just there's just some somebody randomly welding in the background, in while live performance music is going on, and it's like, well, there you go. Oh yeah, and um, you know just everything. This is a movie where, as you had said with one of our earlier films, all of the tonal elements are aligned. Absolutely. There is nothing that sticks out as far. Everything fits. It is all of a piece. Um, and it's it's interesting. Even someone like Ernie Hudson, who, by the way, I, this is one of my this is one of his finest hours. I think for me, he's personally. great. 
Yeah, he is and, genuinely uh, great. And but both his performance and just uh, the way that 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 uh, cop character is in the movie, it all still fits. You're using yeah. a movie star uh, in a way in a, in a a role where he's a detective. He's helping Eric. He's kind of an audience surrogate at times, as well mm-hmm. as um, Sarah, who's kind of the the proto Chloe Grace Moretz character. Um, not right. Chloe Grace Moretz, but I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind of that that uh, thing a few years earlier. Sure. And so we have two audience surrogate characters almost, but you still spend a lot of time with Eric. So you almost don't even need an audience surrogate character at all. Yeah. Um, but all of this is kept on in even Eric and Sarah's relationship, which is very sweet um, because they knew each other before he uh, when he was living. Um, all of this still fits within kind of that very romantic morose um and and somewhat bleak although uh perhaps with a ray of of sunshine peeking from between the dark clouds um it's all stays in line with itself because one could easily imagine the the spunky kid who's his sidekick friend that could go real sideways in a movie like this and it just doesn't here no it it absolutely doesn't um honestly this is another movie with a terrific cast i mean uh, besides Ernie Hudson, you have you have Tony Todd, you have John Polito. Uh, the the primary villain is played by Michael Wincott. Oh, uh, and he is so Jerry, so great in this movie. Oh, he's he is so great in this movie, and it's such a it's such a. I wrote down it's such a '90s movie that even the villain is sad, sad, and a little bit bored with life. You know, I, I also thought to myself, this is the movie that the Ben Affleck Daredevil tried to pattern itself after. But the Ben Affleck Daredevil is the a little too late corporate version of of kind of of this. It's like, oh, it's it's, hey, we can we can sell goth to those kids if we uh, if we take all the elements from uh, from the more authentic version, which is the crow. Yeah, and the crow uh, with Michael Wincott's character where he has that snow globe. They got uh, from his dad when he was five years old, and oh, that yeah. whole line: "Childhood's over the moment you know you're gonna die." <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and, and the whole the and, and yeah, the villain. Oh God, could he be the kid from Saint Elsewhere? Grown up, I'd like to. Oh, that's so. a that's <laughs> that's a deep cut. Then we're getting to Darkman uh, there as well. So where it's the shared oh. universe. All, it's all the it is that. everything happens. It's all connected. Um, and uh, also David Patrick Kelly, correct? Uh, Jerry Horn and Warriors come out to play, <laughs> and the evil and the evil dreamscape guy, I believe. Oh yeah, that's uh, right. Also, that's yeah, right. He turned You're, into absolutely. the Snake Man, and and my night. He turned into the Snake Man. That is a terrifying sequence. Yes. <laughs> yeah. um, like Batman, there is a cathedral where the the climax takes place, and we do get another villain falling to his death. But this time he is, because it is the most goth movie ever, he is impaled on a gargoyle. Oh, yes. And that there are a lot of... It's interesting. The Crow, you wouldn't watch Batman and the Crow back-to-back and necessarily feel that they were... That one was trying to be the other. And I don't think it is. But they do share a lot of elements. Um, even, uh, like, when, yeah. uh, when the Crow kills uh, Tintin and he leaves behind the Crow symbol... And you get that crow symbol yes. left in, in multiple places throughout the film. And it is, I mean, it's very reverse bat signal. 
Um, you're, yep. It's not you calling uh, the hero, it's the hero telling you where he's been. Again, another thing they, they, they mimicked in the Daredevil where it's the fire, it's like on the ground and they do the, the two Ds and fire. It's like, man, you stole that right from the crow. The other thing that they uh, that's similar with Batman is the model work in some of the yeah. sets. Um, like in the beginning when you're flying through that model city... Uh, the shot's fairly long and, and feels pretty epic, um, and it's uh, that's that. It's a different stylized aesthetic from Burton's Batman, but it is definitely a stylized aesthetic. And I think even two, three years later, I don't know that you would have gotten away with building that model city and being able to kind of fly yeah. through it with your camera. Well, it, compare it to some of the much more grounded cities that you'd see in Christopher Nolan's The World of Christopher Nolan's Batman, where it feels like oh we took kind of chicago and pittsburgh and new york and kind of mashed them together but they, it, it feels like it's a real city this feels like kind of otherworldly in the way that 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 tim burton's gotham city uh has a, an otherworldly feel what i also love about this movie is that um it's it is also very detail oriented um in different ways than something like the rocketeer it doesn't have that similar kind of traditional setup and payoff necessarily um yeah. there are things that come into play but it's it's just not it that's not what the story is um but you get a lot of things written into the story and visually expressed that where the two coming together add up more than the sum of the parts um like the resurrection of eric is uh, almost like a goth rebirth or more like a re-death i guess if you totally will. Uh, you know, he walks through filthy, the filthy garbage birth canal in the alley and he's shedding his clothes. So he's like, like the snake skin's coming off. It's in the rain, of course. And of it's, course, uh, you know, it's almost when he gets to his old place. This is at the night of the resurrection. It's almost like a, mm -hmm. the camera's in a POV and it's treated almost like a killer's POV in Halloween or something like that. So again, oh, interesting. And this this to me harkens back to to Burton's Batman, where in the introduction to Batman, there is that moment of you're playing with horror elements. Are you to fear the hero or not? When Eric's reborn as the Crow, you get a little bit of that. Um, and then, unlike Burton's Batman, um, while you I think are rooting for Eric, um, the movie treats him. You you are he is to be feared throughout this movie. It is uh, yeah. It has a lot more teeth, I would say, uh, than uh, than some of the others. Uh, agreed. No, I mean he's there, there's no pretense of not seeking vengeance. Like he is he is out to to destroy the people who who killed him, uh, and and that's. There's no bones about it. There's no. There's no. Um, it's not pretending uh, to 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 do anything other than than seek vengeance on those who did him and uh, and his his fiance Shelley, uh, who did them in, uh, and understandably so. Um, it's interesting. This movie, in, in a lot of ways, is is very influential in its own right um, in terms of the look of it, it, it and and I mean. So many late 90s movies and early aughts movies seem like they are drawing from the style of The Crow. I mean, just to name one that, that feels like it's kind of coming downstream is The Matrix. The Matrix feels like it's very mm -hmm. much in the vein of The Crow, uh, stylistically. Absolutely. This is one where 
you could almost do a get me another crow and probably yeah. go through a number of films um that, that came off of this which is another great way of, of showcasing which we've said again and again that just because a movie comes in the wake of another movie and is influenced by it uh doesn't make it valid in its own right and it doesn't mean it can't go off and do its own thing and inspire Absolutely. more right it's that you know nothing happens in a vacuum everything is is in some ways in a conversation with the things that came before it and uh well hopefully if if successful be in a conversation with the things that will come after it one thing I would say is that um, another influence of The Crow is this is the first of the films that we've talked about for in, in the Batman cycle. This is the first one that feels like it's influenced by music videos. Um, sure. And, and not just because it uses more um, popular songs of its day in sequences. Just the, the shooting style, the lighting style, the, the editing style feel much more of a kin uh, at the end, you know, the the zenith of the mtv era uh it's all about to come mm-hmm. crashing down in a few years from from when this film's released um and so as a consequence of that this is the film and i didn't have a stopwatch but i think it goes the longest stretches with no dialogue of any of the ones that we've oh, that's uh, been talking about and so in a weird way those long stretches uh kind of give it in some ways, while the budget is much lower than some of the other films, it gives it a very cinematic feel and also, uh, I think, helps impart some of the goth heaviness if you're not uh, talking all sure. the time. You can brood. Right. That's absolutely... No, I think you're right. That's that's interesting. Yeah, it, it, a number of, uh, you know, I, I of the films I think that we're going to talk about, some of the films we'll talk about in the, the near future have a draw from sort of the music video aesthetic that that kind of emerged in the late 80s and early 90s as music videos evolved into a form of their own. Absolutely, absolutely. I think we have to mention, you know, it's, it, we can't talk about The Crow without at least touching on the the tragic onset death uh, of Brandon Lee. Uh, because if you want to talk about uh, one of the, one of the might-have-been stories, uh, you know, losing Brandon Lee uh, at this particular time uh, you just feel like there's a whole, he, he would have been a, a much more influential, he would have had a chance to play uh, roles that were much more, you know, would have been much more influential. We just, it, it's one of those things where you say just what a, what a tragedy, the type of thing that should never happen. Um, and, uh, you know, what, what could have been, I, I, I think I read somewhere that, you know, he was the, the person originally that the Wachowskis had in mind for the Matrix, that he was, was originally going to be who they originally had in mind for Neo, um, which I mean, you know, talk about a movie that 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 uh, that we might do on Get Me Another at some point is The Matrix. Obviously, uh, you know, influenced a whole wave of of action filmmaking throughout the aughts. And while I fully admit I have rose-colored glasses on when it comes to this film, uh, unabashedly love it, always have. I will say I hadn't seen it in a long time, as many of these. Um, Brandon Lee. It's a long time removed from, you know, the, the tragedy that occurred and then seeing the movie in the wake of, of his death. And so even with that distance now, it, it makes me more confident when I when I see him in this film that he would have been a, a really yeah. big star. Because, yeah. I mean, look, this movie is so over the top 
in a lot of ways, as, as many of the comic book movies can be because of what, you know, source material and the types of action you're doing. It could go completely off the rails, but um, Brandon Lee, above all, the whole cast does, but Brandon Lee, above all, especially given his role, he just sells it. And it, yeah. it really is amazing how he performs this role. I mean, there's the one point where Eric uh, picks up a guitar at the pawn shop and he's carrying it around. Um, and on paper, that sounds like it could go wrong in a yeah. million ways. Totally like, you know, hey, yeah. I got the hero. And he, oh, yeah, he, he used to be a rock star and he's going to strap on a guitar from the pawn shop. Um, but I mean, just the way he picks it up and slings it. And I, I, I can't tell exactly what's going on but his physicality is so like natural and moving that you don't you don't you don't think twice about it um i do because i'm you know trying to think twice about everything with this that is what um, we do yeah and his 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 charisma and charm come off the charts and most of this role has nothing to do with his um fighting ability i mean obviously there is plenty of that in the movie but the bulk of what's impressive for him in this movie is everything that is not those scenes um, absolutely a- anyway and just you know also no, i think it, um i don't know it just it just blew me away and it, you know again very sad for for his family and for everyone to have oh lost him. absolutely and it's just it's it's a it's a loss and it's one that's keenly felt and uh you know and, and at least this movie is 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 there as as a as a great example of of his talent and it is it, it, it will always be tinged with sadness because of the performances we never got and uh so that's i mean and i think that that probably is is i think a way to ramp up uh this week's episode um you know and and uh, you know it's a, a little bit it's a little bit of a, of a of a of a sad note to end on but you know it's uh it's appropriately so because um because it's 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 a loss and it's a loss that uh you know, people will continue to feel because there'll be people that discover this film and his performance in it for for years to come, and uh, and will learn the story, and and there'll always be that that sadness. And again, tragically, and much like his father, who 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 passed away just as as sort of his uh, the wave of his stardom was beginning to break. Um, we hope you've enjoyed listening and that you'll tune in for our next episode when we discuss two films featuring characters rooted in the pulp era of the 1930s. So join us next time as we discover what evil lurks in the hearts of men with the shadow and we then slam that evil with the phantom. Thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter at GetMeAnotherPod and join us next time as we continue to explore or what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. Mm-hmm.